grappling with chemical dependency since the age of 13. Today, we interview Alec, now 32, whose first attempt at sobriety at the age of 29 was stymied by a masterful ability to conceal multiple relapses from close friends and family members, coupled with his utilization of the dark web to obtain his drugs of choice. During this three-year period, Alec was in and out of inpatient treatment and sober living environments, all the while having everything from cocaine, Adderall, Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, Vicodin, Norco, Percocet, Dilaudid, Opana, Heroin, Fentanyl, Ecstasy, Provigil, Tramadol, and Ambien literally delivered in bulk to his front doorstep. In addition, we discussed the effects using had on Alex's life and relationships, as well as resources for those in need of help and those seeking to help others struggling with addiction. I am Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do. I'm here with Alec. Today what we're doing is Alec is going to tell his story about his journey through addiction and substance abuse. And uh, he's going to add as much detail as he wants. And I'm going to be making pithy remarks throughout. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and he will respond with pithy remarks. And we'll talk also about resources for people struggling with addiction. If you're a family member of someone who has, or a friend, what do you do? How do you handle it? All that. But first we're going to do Alec's story and we're just going to go. So I am in, I guess you would, you get to, I get to call it long-term recovery at this point, coming up on two years. It sounds like a really short period of time, but also a really significantly long period of time. I feel like I, I, I still only have reverence for people in AA meetings where it's like, yeah, I, I got my 15 year chip, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think folks realize like how long it takes to actually get to two years. I think what I finally get to. It's about two years. Yeah. Exactly. You can Sorry. That. You, can, you can put that, put that down. Yeah. But the, the thing about addiction or recovery is that it's, they have this, this, this maxim of one day at a time. They do. They do. They say that. One fucking day at a time. And when you do that 365 times in a row and then you double that, it's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. What was your longest period of sobriety before that? The first 13 years of my life. Oh, yeah. And from the age of 13 to the last two years, how much sobriety? What was the longest period of sobriety between the ages of 13 and what? How old are you? I am 32. So between the ages yeah, of 13 and old. 30. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm 44. Wait till you say that. You're 44. <laughs> wow. We can't be friends. <laughs> okay. Am I the cool guy you tell all your friends about like that are appropriately aged? Alec, I tell some of my friends about you. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, only the ones I'm trying to impress. Yeah. What do you say? I say, I know this guy, Alec. He's tall. I am tall. And he has an easy time dating because he's tall. And young. And young. And reasonably intelligent. And I guess you're good looking. And yeah. I, I yeah, think I'm, a, I'm you, pretty good looking. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're cute, you know. Oh. So we're talking about your addiction. Right. So the longest period of sobriety between the ages. So from 13 to 30, 17 years of hard time. Yep. What was the longest period of sobriety in that time that you had? I would say no more than a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. Even when we knew each other and you were struggling with it and you were in like, you went to Bayside for a while. That was, you were, it's an Okay. Rehab. Well, yeah, I don't count rehab. You don't count that's... rehab. So as soon as you got out of Bayside, were you using again? As soon as you got out of treatment, sorry, Bayside is a rehabilit uh, inpatient rehabilitation center in San Rafael, California. And it's um, pretty incredible. I used to work there. It's like Betty Ford but probably with better food. And so in a better name and a better name. <laughs> yeah. They really need to rebrand themselves. Like Betty Ford. I don't think of like, yeah, Betty Ford. I, yeah. I know it's like a big name in the recovery community, but to me it sounds like it's woman who plays cribbage. So, um, after you got out of Bayside Marin, you were there for three, two months, 45 days, 45 days. Yeah. You got out and you started using within two weeks. Pretty close to that. Yeah. You were lying to everybody, I guess, huh? Yeah. Well, that's, Wow. That's what you do. That's what you do. One of the things I want to say about addiction is that relapse is so incredibly common and it's so pervasive. Anyone who's been through addiction and come out the other side alive will tell you that it's the, the lies that they live were so deep in their cell structures of, <laughs> that they, 
it's almost like they believe them themselves and they would they would lie to themselves lie to everybody else part of the point of this episode is to is to talk about how pervasive that drive is despite your desire to please everybody despite your desire to live it's like you're possessed by a demon in a way and a lot of people look at addiction like oh it's your fault you used well yes and no and that's the paradox of addiction it's yes it's your fault and no it's not your fault both of those things are true i don't care what anybody says it's a part of your brain that you have very little, you can exercise very little control over. What is it? The uh, the amygdala. Amygdala. And so let's talk about that for a second. Do you know about the amygdala? Yeah. Well, then, well let's talk. I've been to rehab three times. <laughs> I, I know all about the amygdala. They have these. So how rehab sometimes works is that they'll have therapy group like 10 o'clock in the morning. Yes. Yeah, like they'll like take that. you to the gym or to pet a horse in the morning. <laughs> don't even get me started on that and then you'll go for a swim then they'll have a process group like a therapy group and then usually there's a lecture around noon or two o'clock some specialist who's way overpaid or underpaid as i was when i did it i think i was getting 16 dollars an hour it's just above minimum wage yeah just above minimum wage and i was giving lectures that phds and other folks had given and i was just doing them because i'd seen them so i'd just present the same information you know yeah. and, and these people were getting like two three four hundred dollars and i was getting sixteen dollars anyway what were we saying the amygdala, amygdala. T- t- teach me teach us teach us yeah amygdala. so uh, and i mean correct me since you've apparently lectured on this topic. I haven't lectured on the amygdala. Okay. I would never do such a thing. So it's a very old part of your brain. And I, you know, weirdly, I actually know some of this from working in advertising. I know somebody's going to listen to this and like completely shut me down. I think it's the reptilian part of your brain. Yeah. Like it's the, the it's by the base of your, your skull, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's like just a prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it drives the, the desire to basically tells you you need to eat and sleep and regulates your sex drive Mm -hmm. you know when you start developing that drive to you know start to use or drink or i don't know shop play video games any of those Mm -hmm. things folks develop addictions to i mean it's it's literally that strong i would describe it as even stronger than needing to kind of the need to like satiate myself with food or water. I mean, cause you know, I would go for a day or two without eating, but I would still, Oof. I mean, probably even longer than that. Walk me through a craving. Walk me through a moment when you're, you know, you've had a couple days clean or you're fighting the addiction and you want your drugs. What, what's the process? At least in early recovery, I think I would not even realize I was having them. I would just start acting on them so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, It would be set off by the weirdest things because, you know, when I was in early recovery, I wasn't like going and hanging out in a bar and like, of course, that's triggering my cravings. It was Mm -hmm. like something like, like, I have nothing to do all day long and I've never spent any significant period of my life with having any free time on my hands without using them. You know, I'd start ideating or ruminating or experiencing things like euphoric recall. What is euphoric recall? It's essentially remembering the glory days, having some kind of like continual positive recollection or recall of your times while using. Okay. Um, some of those were really great. I had some really great times. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, especially uh, before drug use got really, I mean, obviously I was always out of control, but before kind of in that last year, maybe last two years of my mm-hmm. life, um, there were a lot of great times like going out to the bar, hanging out with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes even when I was in a good mood, I'd find myself having cravings, mm-hmm. you know, folks like to send out all of the, like, you know, what is it? The halt um, hungry, angry, lonely type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they those are all bad things, you know, but nobody ever really prepped me for the fact that like, yeah, sometimes you might be in a good mood and it's sunny outside and you might want to go like drink a bottle of wine in the park. You have this euphoric recall and then what happens? What's it like in your body? How does it feel? Gosh, I don't know. It almost like fires in every single muscle in my body. Like I start to feel really tense. Mm-hmm. I guess especially with the heavy opiate use and the heavy benzo use, mm-hmm. like my body's used to feeling really relaxed, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So suddenly feeling super, super tense and kind of only knowing that I only ever had one mechanism to cope with that and sort of relieve that tension. I was never one for like yoga and I didn't own a bathtub at the time. So it's pretty overwhelming. Every cell in your body wants that drug. Yeah. Well, and it starts to get, I was always like really process oriented with it. Like there was a process, there was a habitual thing. And it, it started very much with a thought process just because of, um, I got all my drugs from the internet. 
for the most part. Oh, from the dark web. Yeah. Wow. I'm one of those kids. How is that? And I don't mean to encourage people to do this, but no. you literally would just go online and press cl and click something, and then the next day the drugs would show up. I mean, I mean, there's like, uh, you know, you got to buy Bitcoin. Right. You got to transfer stuff out. Right. And I don't want to go into any details for anybody yeah. who listening to this who yeah. decides they want to try it out. But you, you need to go through processes to make sure the money's not traceable to you. Yeah like there's a whole encrypted communications thing and all of that. So there's like a real, I mean, it'll be half a day. I think you once half a day. Yeah. Yeah. How did, I mean, would they send it with us on, with us? Does a stork bring it to you? I mean, what is that? Oh, like? the drugs getting, I, I mean, just the literal buying of the drugs. Oh, the buying takes out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, then it's, it's however, I mean, you could get folks to overnight charge it. I mean, that would obviously be expensive. God. And it just shows up at your door. That's amazing. Yeah. I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is just how, how dark this stuff gets. And while, let's say you're uh, living with your girlfriend at the time. And I was. You were. And you uh, probably wanted to keep that, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. You knew me. We were I friends, did know you. And, yeah. and so you've got this craving and you, you know, your family's very concerned about you and you're worried about your job and money and all these things are on the line. Everything really hinges on you not doing drugs <laughs> right and i tell i tell a lot of my patients i say look the ones that my patients who are in recovery or trying to get clean i say look you've got one job that's it you have one thing and that's don't put any substances in your body everything else is a distant distant second and i think you knew that at the time yeah so with that knowledge in mind you knew what all the consequences are going to be how is it that you would work your way through that and end up using drugs again I mean, I, I would break it down into three distinct phases. So after, you know, after I've kind of made the decision, mm -hmm. at first it's kind of a, well, I'm just going to go browse for a second. Because it is, it's like online shopping, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. so I would go browse, you know, and like, just like anybody would have in the real world, like, like you have, story. you have the, yeah, <laughs> going through the racks. Well, and like you have your preferred vendors and stuff, oh, you know, much God. like a drug addict would have in the real world too. And right. it's kind of like, and they offer specials, discounts, you know, oh my God. Uh, limited time offers, that kind of bullshit. And so it literally is like online shopping and all kinds of people go on the, on the internet to uh, browse for all kinds of things. I just happen to be like the type of person where I bet, I bet online shopping addicts could tell a very similar story mm -hmm. where they're like, yeah, I just go online and I browse. And is that a euphoric recall kind of like browsing is kind of a, it's kind of a ritual and like, this feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm totally. not really going to use, I'm just going to look at them. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. Uh, just because I'm curious, but like they also have pictures and things up there, <laughs> descriptions. They have people who review it. Oh my god! Yeah, really? So and have I, reviews of like Xanax, like yeah, this yeah. this Xanax is really good, and this is really amazing, and right. Well, and sometimes somebody would like sell a fake product, or right. their order didn't arrive, or something. It's the free market, man. It's the free market, but it's like this centralized online place where people can enable each other because oh, it's, so it's people who are in there to make a shit ton of money but then like you're reading reviews of all of these it's other like amazon yeah it's like amazon <laughs> but like in, i shouldn't laugh i yeah. shouldn't laugh it's no but, i mean it's a ridiculous concept and yeah. it's it's horrible and it so, nearly ended my life so but, you're browsing and then what happens so i'm browsing and then i would call the second phase you know basically the and this will maybe continue for a couple of weeks which is kind of a okay well i'm just gonna do it this once like i'm just gonna spend a little bit of money like i'm capping myself out at a hundred bucks top a little bit of money yeah bucks, that's it yeah just a little bit of money right especially when i was uh going through benzo withdrawals it was one of those things where i was like okay i'm gonna take a regulated amount every single day and, you know, like I'm going to take a half milligram of clonopin every single day. And that's going to help me get through this. And eventually I'm going to stop. Get through but what? Just get through the, the literal, the pause. Oh, pause. So pause yeah. is a post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And it involves a sense of fogginess. You often told me that you, like, you couldn't, you didn't feel clear unless you took a pill. Yeah. Uh, a sense of fogginess, moodiness, uh, weight loss or gain, I believe, uh, sleeplessness or sleep excess. And this can up, last up to two years. It's pretty intense. And the idea is, is that if you're watering a tree with gasoline and then you put a lot of it, especially on the weekends, 
<laughs> you know, you change the internal chemistry of the tree. You change it. You change it in its core. And so, when you come off of drugs, this is where the analogy falls apart because trees don't like gasoline, and they're probably very grateful to not have gasoline yeah. poured on them. But human beings, for some reason, they don't take the adjustment from gasoline to water so good. And it's like your whole body chemistry, the homeostasis of your body, uh, is is all topsy turvy, and you're basically becoming normal again and it takes a long time so anyway so you'd be so you're just you'd plan it out i'm gonna take a little bit and then what would happen that second phase would kind of fall into a well i'm managing this you mm -hmm. know it would not be a well i'm not strung out all day long or i'm not drinking all the time right you know especially with the benzos for me it was i don't know I, it was always like much more manageable there was like this distinct second phase of like okay well i'm managing this and i've got this and then inevitably like i would get caught or wind up in the hospital or something like that and then i'd fall into this distinct like i don't give a shit phase if folks are into Alcoholics Anonymous, they would hear the whole brief periods of sobriety followed by ever worse relapse mm -hmm. kind of concept. Mm -hmm. You know, relapse has always got worse and worse for me. Isn't so. that interesting? I have a theory. It's probably wrong, but um, I mean, they, they talk about addiction being a progressive disease. I don't exactly buy the disease model, but the, the one analogy is like, if you think of f fire, like fire meets many of the definitions for life. You know, it reproduces, it grows, it is, it expels, it consumes, but it's not alive. Addiction is much that way. It, it has all the hallmarks of a disease. Is it technically a disease? I guess that's up for debate. Maybe it's just a semantic issue. I, I kind of buy the disease model because yeah. if it's not a disease, it perfectly mimics a so neurological disease. It might as well be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and what I've noticed with my patients over the years, if you could graph like a you know a line from you know let's say from age thirteen to uh, thirty, you graphed um, the severity of Alex's uh, usage. You would notice that in the periods of time where he didn't use, it was and he picked up again. It was as though it had been increasing in severity the entire time. And I've seen this with people who take a year off or two years off. They're like, I can't believe how much more severe this relapse was. And I've been clean for a year and I thought I could handle it. And suddenly I'm drinking twice as much and you put it on a graph and, and I do this and it's lo and behold, it's like, whoosh, it's like a nice clean slope. I'd say it's really hard for that graph to ever come back down to zero. I don't like the mentality or, or a lot of the, it encourages a lot of negative thinking in people, uh, especially in early recovery where it's kind of the once an addict, always an addict mindset, mm -hmm. you know, like you're never going to be rid of this where i mean that's definitely true mm -hmm. i mean i there's the what's the model the um, um oh uh harm reduction harm reduction yeah okay harm reduction novel, uh the model is uh good for some but i see it as like being a little bit pregnant yeah so then your relapse would just get progressively worse is that basically the process is there anything else you wanted to add to that especially kind of in that last stretch of relapse before i got sober like i i just didn't care like I just really yeah. given up on the concept of being sober. The drugs affect your judgment. That's why they tell people who people who are in and Narcotics Anonymous know damn well they can't drink alcohol because what happens when you drink? Your judgment goes out the window. Right. And you end up looking for your Coke dealer. Taking drugs does that too. You take a little bit. Oh, it's just going to manage it. Then all of a sudden you don't give a fuck. And all of a sudden you're off to the races again because your whole it's like your whole reality's been reorganized. That's what I. That's how I feel like it is. There's a very popular, especially among kind of your neurologist folks. One of my dad's friend friends is a, a neurologist back home, and he has been pushing both in the o Ohio state legislature and just on Facebook all the time. I ended up having to block him mm -hmm. uh, that he thought weed was like a great thing and it was going to solve Ohio's very serious problem with opioid addiction. Do you think that's just lobbying like from the weed industry? I think A, he's like a huge fucking hippie. Yeah, I mean this is a guy who's like really into prog rock and jazz fusion, so Like I I'm I'm actually I'll just say this outright. I'm I'm I feel that everything should be legalized. I think that human beings should have the choice to do whatever they need to do for themselves. I want to say that but, <laughs> but pot <laughs> is such a powerful drug yeah. and I have seen it ruin so many lives. And I know I'm going to upset a lot of people and I don't care actually, 
it is a gateway drug for people who are addicts, not necessarily for your average schmo, but if you are an opiate addict and you go and you start smoking weed, you're gonna end up doing opiates again. If you're an alcoholic and you go smoke weed, you're gonna end up drinking again. Chances are. And I only know this because I've seen it. I've lost track of how many times I've seen that. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Enough, I think, to create a real statistic. <laughs> so yeah. yes, this is a thing. And what you see is that for, for the vast majority of people, it's not such a big deal. And so the misconception about the power of marijuana is staggering. It, it's, and I, again, like I have been so pro-legalization of weed my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, some, of that, some of that might have started with being a pothead in high school, but still absolutely should be legalized. But I think there is within this whole political discussion of like, it's a relatively harmless thing. It has maybe passed on to some addicts who look at it of like, well, you know, it is a re relatively harmless thing. So maybe I can get there. I can say personally, you know, having gotten sober out here in California and like we having been legal for most of the time I've been out here in California, like I can at least say from personal experience, I have never once seen somebody who's turned around and started smoking weed and they've been fine. And the other thing that happens, um, here's a, an analogy for you. So I had a friend a while back who had a pretty serious concussion at the age of 17, 18, something like that. She uh, suffered a lot, got over it. And then at the age of, I think 22, 23, she went to a neurologist or, or some, some specialist who said, you know, you've lost 10% of your vision. Now, what's interesting about that is how the hell are you supposed to know if you lose 10% of your vision? Because you only know that you could, you, you're, you're, the limits of your vision are, are... Your vision. Your vision, yeah. right? And thought in, in, is the same way. If you smoke a bunch of weed and you think, oh, I'm fine, you don't know that. You don't know what you've lost. Right. The, the psyche can only, you know, you Carl Jung, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung. Carl Jung said this, he said something much more eloquently than I am about to say. But basically the, the psyche by definition cannot expand beyond its own limits. Its limits are its limits, right? I thought that was beautiful, Ben. <laughs> You're so sweet to me. Anyway, so yeah, um, down with pot. <laughs> except not except not it, unless you know let's, you're let's a, make rope out of it i hear it's it, great for rope yeah i mean if you're a if you're a drug addict you can eat all the hemp waffles you want you know what's funny <laughs> not mom. weed waffles but you know what's funny to waffles. me is that is that the the, 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 the there's so so much disin, disingenuity is that a word disingenuousness disingenuity i don't know the word. i don't know i don't know i don't, I don't, I don't like the word anyway so just when i see a bunch of hippies talking about the you know hemp is great for rope and it's got all these amazing uses that's true but really you just want to get high yeah just say that like say i want to just get high. really like weed you just <laughs> really like weed and you want to get high don't tell me it's good for rope and clothes i get it's good for rope and clothes yeah yeah you know what else is good for rope and clothes your fucking dreadlocks That'd be great for, that'd be, I could no. make sure that- dreadlocks are good for nothing. They're no. <laughs> no. You could use them as fertilizer. Anyway, um, so 13, you started using, what, how did you start using it at the age of 13? Like how does that uh, happen to a 13 year old? I mean, it was one of those things where I had an older sister. She was in, she was graduating from high school about that time. So like she was throwing, you know, parties or whatever mm -hmm. you know so my younger friends and i would see older kids drinking and i mean you see it in you know movies tv you know that there are adults in your life who do it so like you get curious around the time that you're in early adolescence mm -hmm. i mean all kinds of weird things are going on you're experimenting with everything all of our parents had alcohol laying around my dad specifically he would throw this he still throws this party for physicians from all around the country they come and it's like a big physician leadership conference mm -hmm. and then he would always stock the bar and he would have to bring that stuff when he came home so mm -hmm. there was always just like a crate of liquor sitting in our basement mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. my friends and i like decided one night like all right screw it we're gonna hang out down in the basement and we're gonna tell our parents we're just watching a movie and like we're gonna try drinking and we're gonna see what drinking's like mm -hmm. and like we had such a good time mm -hmm. i just think i had such a better time than everybody else <laughs> you know yeah so do you think that i mean sidebar do you think that addiction is genetic yeah i buy that my dad definitely drinks more than he should and we've had conversations about it mm -hmm. if someone's drinking you know people want what they want and if you have a sip of alcohol and you feel amazing and you feel more amazing than your average joe that 
that you're going to drink again. So if there's something, if there's a genetic component that makes you enjoy alcohol more than say the next guy, because you've heard the stories and I know they're just stories about people who would go to Vietnam and they'd use heroin, uh, you know, cause yeah. you're in, in Vietnam. But then, <laughs> then we freeload they, them all in Japan. Yeah. And they, and they come home and they just never use again. I mean, how's that possible? You know, that must, that, that, that says to me that there must be some, um, yeah well it's the whole uh it's the aa phenomenon allergy of the body like you never heard that one no for not having any real developed uh science around it at the time they described it as an obsession of the mind and an allergy of the body so one was the obsession of the mind so the actual compulsion thing but they also um snagged that fact of like this seems to do something different to a certain subset of the people than it does to most people like when it hits you your body reacts differently yeah i can't i don't like drinking Um, yeah i won't drink more than a couple drinks i feel sick i can't do any drug pot gives me panic attacks i just can't i can't codeine makes me itchy and i can't sleep xanax i build up a tolerance so quickly that i i it's like i'd have to take the whole freaking bottle yeah you know so no no drugs for me no drugs for you. No drugs for Ben. I envy that so much. I'm not in recovery. Full disclosure. Yeah. Um, Lucky son of a son of a son of a son of a person. Okay. So 13. So you're partying, and then high school comes, and it picks up. Yeah, I mean, it picks up because more kids are doing it mm-hmm. by that period. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody you always you know we picked out like the one kid who had a beard. You know, <laughs> like the first kid who was able to. To grow a beard and he had all the drugs well no but he didn't have all the drugs but he was at least somebody who like you could give a fake id to and like could maybe pass for 21. oh my gosh at the same time my sister introduced me to my first weed dealer i don't know if she remembers that next time i see her i'm gonna need to be like this is all your fault oh clearly yeah clearly she did it she did she did that see totally it was out of my hands oh, at yeah. that point oh my god but yeah, I started smoking weed all the time. I started selling weed. I got caught with a pound of weed. A pound? Yeah. How old were you when you got caught with a pound of weed? I do not even think I could drive yet. I think I was like 14. And and that was that was a while back when weed was much more illegal. It still is. I grew up in Ohio. That What was... happened to you? What did they do? Did they throw you in the in a hole in the ground? I got caught by parents. Oh, thank God. Yeah. I bet they were surprised. It was the unluckiest thing in the world. I was talking to a friend over the phone about it. Uh-huh. And his mom had like this was before people had like two phone lines. Right. You know? At least before any of us had two phone lines. So old. Yeah. She picked up the phone and overheard us talking on a landline about the pound of marijuana we had scored. We stole it from somebody at a party, which I don't know what another high school kid was doing with that much either. But, mm-hmm. and we, I don't think our plan was even to sell it. I think that was just like, okay, well, the three of us have weed for the rest of our lives now. Um, in retrospect, could you say that was a lucky thing that you got caught by your mom or someone's mom? I didn't even really get in that much trouble for it. So hence the problem. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I just took the money I was going to spend uh, on weed anyways. I so. just, I mean, even now, a pound of weed, a parent finding a pound of weed in the possession of should a 14-year-old kid should be ser- seriously concerned. Seriously concerning. One pound. Yeah. You know, I heard a story um, today from a guy uh, in the field who said that these kids, like eighth graders, they're, they're smoking weed through marijuana through the vapes, and they trade Xanax at school and stuff. And it's insane. They're in eighth grade. Yeah. I have friends who would tell me about they were doing coke in high school. And I'm just like, where? How? I mean, like I grew up in Cincinnati. So like maybe this was just like a that's a little regional weird. thing. But... but but I think they get it from their parents, you know, and it's like, yeah. there's like one kid and there's these parents don't know how sneaky their kids are. And the kids are smart. I mean, there's nothing. There's no there's no one more intelligent in the world really than a drug addict. Oh, yeah. Because you focus all of your energy. I heard one guy. He said that when he got desperate for money um, to pay for his drugs, he would uh, go get a empty um, gasoline can and walk up and down. And he would say, hey, I'm stuck. Um, I need to go buy some gas. Can I have a couple of bucks? And he was very convincing. Yeah, that's genius. It isn't it? But think about... It's the prop that does it. Because I've run into a bunch of people who yeah. are like, oh, I ran out of gas money. And I'm like, yeah, bullshit. But yeah. the prop, that's yeah. really brilliant. Yeah, smart guy. One of the things I tell my patients, what I tell them is like, look, think of how, how functional you are on your drug of choice. Like you're doing pretty good. You have a high end job. You're making a lot of money. You're 
family is functional. I mean, things are about to fall apart, but they haven't. Imagine focusing all of your 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 insanity on improving your life. Yeah, you're going to be amazing without be, drugs in your system. You're going to be amazing. Like I, I would have been a, amazing. I would have been a millionaire by now. You would have. I really think I could have done something significant with those early years of my life. Yeah. Oh well. So it goes. Um, you did. What was that one thing you did with the the horses? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah I did do that. So um, yeah, I made a bunch of money horse racing. I made an algorithm that would scrape the internet. And uh, right before the triple crowns, and I pointed it at certain experts, like like track and field and all of uh -huh. that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, all the experts will put up their picks, and I'll wait it and uh -huh. see. And you did that, and you. I won a hundred and eighty-six thousand dollars. <laughs> oh my god! And how much money did you put in? Uh, it started with a seven thousand dollar bet. That's amazing. Yeah. If you hit one of those like trifecta, superfecta, those things pay out in a big way. I called a, uh, I called that uh, California Chrome was going to win uh, win the Triple Crown. And this is when you were doing drugs. Yeah. So I'm kind of waiting for, I mean, I know it's been a couple of years, but I mean, dude, <laughs> I, <laughs> you're going to take the world on. Wow. You really, uh, really made me feel like I've done nothing. Oh, to, come on. No. I've done the staying sober. That's the most important that's part. That's a so huge part. I actually really enjoy my life now, too. Yeah. That's the other really important part. Yeah, you, you learn to enjoy. I mean, the gratitude people get in addiction, in recovery, I think is the biggest prize of just like sitting in a park on a sunny day with your dog. Yep. Is like the apex of life. That's <laughs> uh, all I did today. Yeah. It's it wasn't sunny, but, you know. At San Francisco, it's never yeah. sunny. But it was it was good yeah right? i watched what was obviously like a three or four year old's birthday party Fantastic. that was great that's that was the, a great afternoon that's the best thing and you probably would not have learned to appreciate that if you hadn't almost died a few times no yeah. i did yeah several times let's move it along a little bit so 13 for throughout throughout so summarize high school did it did yeah this just, i mean it was mostly smoking weed except that i got my wisdom teeth taken out i remember taking opiates and it was probably like, you know, Vicodin, whatever mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. prescribe for that thing. I remember thinking like, this is the best thing ever. Like I have never felt this good about anything. Mm -hmm. Like no first kiss, no goal in soccer, nothing has yeah. ever felt this good before. Mm -hmm. uh, and they also like, they had prescribed it to me for like several weeks plus a refill. Isn't that amazing? It's insane to me. I mean, they wouldn't do that now, thank God. Right. But at the time, you know, especially yeah. in Ohio where there's like a such a significant problem. But yeah, yeah it, it was ridiculous. I mean, my mom ended up taking them away from me, which was smart. Okay. But yeah, I mean, and I, I just remember, and, and I've said this to people before, and I, they find it so weird that I can remember that specific moment. The first time I took them, I was like sitting in the bathtub. I remember exactly what song I was listening to. Wow. And every single time, because I felt so great that time, mm -hmm. every single time that I would use throughout the rest of my life, no shit. I was trying to get back to that moment, that single moment. Chasing the dragon. Yeah. It's a real, I, I don't know if that's like a real thing for other people, but it was certainly a real thing for me. I hear me. it. Really? All they remember the that very first well, moment. Yeah, they do. Now I don't I don't I've never asked actually in this detail, but they talk about the first time they got high, the first time they got drunk and just how how incredible it was. Yeah. Or a period of time when they were using it, how amazing it was. And it just and then after a while you're just using to feel normal. Yeah. And so you were off to the races. How old were you when that happened? I was probably let's see, sixteen, seventeen. And so is it fair to fast forward to college or should we keep staying? Yeah, I mean, college was like uh, pretty standard college stuff. Just the same drinking and smoking weed that everybody else was doing. The The big change there was in my last year of college. I was drinking enough to start having uh, withdrawals in the morning. What did that look like? I just woke up. I had the first panic attack of my life. I was shaky. My heart was racing. Mm -hmm. My vision was narrowed nothing could seem to calm it down and not even drinking more. You know, that's when I went to go see the 
campus psychiatrist and mm-hmm. they, well, it was campus health center prescribed, uh, sent me to a dude who would prescribe for me. And he was like, yeah, it sounds like you were having a panic attack. So here's some Xanax. Yeah. There was no, you know, and there was no, um, cause it's, like college kids have panic it's attacks. It's amazing. Cause the other thing that happens is when people do lots of drugs and drink, a lot of bad shit happens to them. Yeah. And so they're in this loop where they're going to medical providers saying, I'm having all these problems. Like, oh, we'll just give you more drugs. Yeah. Well, and he never seemed, especially because I was a college kid, he never seemed to ask me. I would know people who had smoked a lot of weed and would have a panic attack. Or, you know, I knew other people who would wake up super hungover and would have a panic attack. So, I mean, he he didn't even think to ask. Mm -hmm. Not once. Uh, or another friend at the time who I think you could have made a case for the fact that he was abusing a lot of drugs, like he was taking Adderall all the time, which like, of course, constant amphetamines will make you have a panic attack. So then you got started getting into Xanax and that picked up steam? No, because I mean, I had a prescription which pretty much significantly limited how much I could use, you know, because you can only refill that so many days early before, you know, mm-hmm. the script is up. Although a couple of times I did call and beg my doctor to do that, mm-hmm. but it was very rare. Um, I was also taking a time release formulation of it, which would last for 12 hours. So it didn't hit into that withdrawal cycle okay. as quickly. Okay. So let's um, fast forward a bit to what's the first major crisis? First major drug use crisis yeah. like later in life yeah um, whatever like the, when did it when did it start getting real bad i started having problems at work around the time that i was 26 okay i worked in the advertising industry you know that's a hard drinking atmosphere anyways but i was maybe another friend and i were maybe taking it a little overboard mm-hmm. as opposed to like the thursday happy hour it was uh you know tuesday thursday friday probably monday too and he ended up getting fired because you know we would be hungover and we would not come into work and he ended up screwing up something really big and got fired and our boss pulled me into his office and he said i kind of wanted to fire both of you this morning but i need both of you but you are like maybe a couple weeks out from having the same thing happen i of course left work at the end of the day and went over to that guy's house with the a case of beer because how else were we going to make that situation better he needed his drinking buddy yeah and he needed a good you know he needed a drink i was starting to feel uh you know the other shoe heading quickly Mm -hmm. towards the ground and instead of getting some help with the situation i found a job all the way across the country that paid more that had a more impressive title and way more responsibility brilliant yeah And it was on the plane flight out there that I read a Wired Magazine article about the dark web. And that was literally the first thing I did when I landed. Was figure that all out. Yep. I went straight to my apartment. I I stopped off by Target and bought a blow-up mattress because all of my stuff was being shipped across the country. But that was the first thing I did. I lived in Colorado working at that company for about a year. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was one of those things where it was a drinking every single night thing. It was a having ounces of cocaine delivered to my office uh, and having it signed for by the receptionist and having it brought directly to me. Um, You know, so uh, it was just and it. It was hard because I was being paid so much money that I wasn't feeling any real financial ramifications from it. And for a while there, I was a pretty well-respected person at work, and I had started a, a relationship that would carry on for a very long time. But things started, I started to recognize that I was really out of control. Getting up first thing in the morning and drinking, or like making yeah. up continuous excuses to not go into work. And this, you're in Colorado at this point? Yeah. And then, um, did you go to rehab out there? Nope. No. What happened next? What was the next big thing? Uh, so that company was about to shut down. So my girlfriend at the time, we both worked there. And so we moved out here and she already had a job and I didn't. I mean, I was left with nothing to do all day long in a city where I didn't know a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in this really crummy, like one bedroom studio. 
I had already discovered that like I could buy drugs on the internet, had been doing that for a little while now. And so it was one of those things where like I would just drink all day long and, you know, I'd probably fall asleep in that like four to 7 p.m. period of time and kind of sober up by the end of the day when my girlfriend would come home from work. You know, the rest of the time there was spent pacing out near the mailbox waiting for stuff to have been delivered. Jesus. Yeah. What a life. And, and is that when you got into treatment for the first time? Uh, I tried to commit suicide. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that or do you want to? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I had been completely strung out for days. I had started consulting for a really good friend of mine. Pause. Did your girlfriend know you were using? Uh, no, it was, people had to have known. I mean, they just had to have known. They knew that I, at that point, they knew that I had a drinking problem. I had admitted to that. My family had been, you know, really pressing me on that. My girlfriend was kind of like more in the cutback mode where my family was kind of like, you just need to stop. You probably did a great job of hiding it. Yeah. I had occasionally used drugs with my girlfriend, Mm -hmm. just cocaine. I find that with a lot of family members, though, that the, the dimension, the severity and the craziness of, of drug use is so outside the realm of understanding that they don't have the capacity to have guessed that something's going on because it's like it's like their it's like their loved one is in another dimension. Yeah. You know, and this was the, the reason that I wanted to touch on the suicide thing for a little bit was um, so I tried to commit suicide by swallowing a bunch of pills, um, but had immediately thought twice about it and uh my sister who had only lived a couple of blocks away at the time came over and called an ambulance we're riding to the hospital and my sister's in the back of the ambulance with me and i knew at this point like okay i don't want to die you know Mm -hmm. and it kind of sunk in that that was going to happen and the guy paramedic was kind of like you need to tell us everything that's in your system right now because we need to administer life-saving care and i started rattling off the list of stuff and I think that was the first time my sister was like just oh my god I don't remember any of that ambulance ride but I imagine her jaw just hitting the floor and the ambulance Mm -hmm. like just everybody and it was kind of crazy like nobody mentioned that to me again until I got out of the hospital Mm -hmm. my mom like took me out to lunch because she wanted to have a one-on-one with me I remember her saying like, no, no, you need to go to treatment. Like mm-hmm. the fact that you're doing heroin now is really serious. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I can't believe I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. I was almost mad at myself because <laughs> it meant I was going to A, have to go to treatment and B, that like they now knew it was that serious. It's like and, a pound of pot. God damn, I'm so unlucky. Yeah. So unlucky. I get caught for everything, man. Yeah. So yeah. So they told me I had to go to treatment, which like I went to... I showed up to an IOP at first thinking, oh, okay, I can just go to an IOP. They heard about my drug use history and they were like, absolutely not. Can you just go to an outpatient program? You need to get an inpatient. They they were like, there is absolutely nothing in your history that indicates that simply going to an outpatient treatment program is going to work for you. Right. I went to the Canyon in Malibu. Okay. Very expensive. Like I was just not ready to get sober and mm-hmm. they really wanted me to stay for 60 days mm-hmm. and I did not get along with my therapist there at the time and she was, I think the way she went about trying to convince my family members first that I needed to stay for 60 days felt weird. And Yeah, that always happens. Yeah. That's a common thing. You know, they, it's this weird mixture of trying to save someone's life and trying to make a ton of money off of them. Yeah. It's so strange because in rehab, because everybody needs more than 30 days in a, in a rehab, but it's, yeah. you know, 16, 17, $1,800 a day. It's a yeah. lot of money, you know, 50, 60, 70, $100,000. Who's got that? So anyway, so you come back to, to foundations um, and you go to IOP there and you, did you graduate? Well, did you I complete that program. I came back for a second. Uh, then I overdosed. Then I went back to. So you, what was the overdose? Was that? That was in between the Canyon and going to Bayside. And, and, and the overdose, you had ordered a, like a bottle full of Xanax and gotten up in the, can you, do you want to tell that story? Yeah. Well, I mean, I had, uh, I had four different drugs in my system that night. I had to, I had like gotten into this routine where I needed to like calibrate myself with all of these drugs. Mm-hmm. So like I had really liked doing cocaine for a long time and I was struggling with pause 
Yeah. And so in order to keep myself from feeling tired all the time, um, you know, I would buy cocaine, but I yeah. would like compulsively do cocaine and crystal meth, crystal meth helped yeah. stretch that out, you know? Yeah. Um, so in, if I may, you remember in the middle of the night, you're taking all these things and you remember the words of um, a therapist who once said to you, you know, you're, a, you're in the highest risk category that I know of. Um, and um, uh, you told me this story a few times and you're, you know, young white guy, those are the guys that die. Uh, and it's true. I, I can attest to the truth of that statement that it's, it's for some reason in my, in my experience, it seems to be the young white males who just dropped dead. Uh, and you told me that you heard uh, this therapist's words in your mind as you were taking those drugs. Yeah. I That's mean, amazing. Like, literally, because I had like the, a brief moment of clarity there of like, man, this has really gotten out of hand. Like I couldn't even sleep through that whole night before I had to like get up and yeah, go use again. And like, I remember thinking like, man, this is really out of hand. This was not like, and I'm, we've gone from the, I'm just browsing to yeah. I'm managing to the like, we're almost at the I don't I don't care face, and then wake up in the middle of the night with a bunch of paramedics. Because your your girlfriend had heard you breathing funny, you said. I was snoring, yeah, which I guess is was actually like the beginnings of respiratory failure. Oh my god! And how did she? And she couldn't wake you up. Yeah, so she called the paramedics. Yep, which I weird. I woke oh. up on my own somehow. Jesus, but after that overdose, then you went to Bayside of her. What is it? 90 days 45 days. 45 days yep. and then you came you went back to foundations and then you went through another stint where you oh you went to that other recovery place north, yeah, north yeah. bay for like yeah it doesn't exist anymore yeah that was 90 days 90 days that okay. was the one that that took. did it yeah so you haven't used since coming out of that Not place once. that's amazing that's a hell of a story man yeah did we cover all the main points yeah okay. i mean I, I would also say i lived in a sober living yeah. Right there, that was super helpful. Yeah, so Sober Living House, for those of you who don't know, is um, what is that, Alec? Uh, it is basically a sober environment where you know some of them will be, you know, kind of regulate your life more than others, but mm -hmm. you're basically living in a house with other people who are sober and mm -hmm. a manager who's keeping an eye on you and you have a curfew. And so, let's talk about two things let's talk about what uh, you think someone who feels they're suffering should do and what someone who feels a friend or family member is suffering from addiction should do. Yeah. Starting with the first one. So let's say that some guy realizes he's an alcoholic or he's addicted to opiates. What should he do if he or she if if they understand the gravity? What what what's what what are the steps? I mean, I would it's kind of um just because I had admitted to my family members early on it set me up with some accountability. Like uh -huh. I would tell my family right away. Okay. Accountability. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just because like, that's also just somebody who, and you know, different people have different relationships with their family, but mm -hmm. at least in my case, like I had a family who was mm -hmm. very supportive. Those were the ones who like found which treatment centers mm -hmm. I was going to go to. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who for a while there supported me financially. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. they're even to this day when I'm not like struggling with sobriety, those are still folks I call when I'm having a bad day. That's so. great. Yeah, I say I say my clients that there's there's four pillars of 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 recovery. That's community, structure, accountability, and faith. And I don't mean faith in the religious sense. I mean faith in the sense that the process is going to work. So for people without resources, um, uh, do you, I mean do you do you go to AA meetings? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. So you work the steps and all that. Uh, I'm not done with the steps. No. Okay. You have a sponsor? And I do. I have a sponsor fantastic. now. How often do you go to meetings? Uh, I've slacked off recently since the holidays. Going okay. home kind of turned okay. me off. I was going to like maybe twice a week. Have you been to the men's meeting in Cal Hollow? I have, yeah. I yeah. really like that meeting. Yeah, I've heard it's good. Yeah. It's Wednesday nights at 8, I think. I would um, highly endorse it. And yeah. Union Street. Yeah. Right. Uh, at St. Mary's Church? Yes. Okay. So someone without, without resources, do you think that just going to meetings is enough? I've come down on either side of that. Uh huh. I have seen people where that is all they did. That is how my sponsor did it. Uh -huh. That is how the guy who owned and managed the sober living that I was in for a long time did uh -huh. it. I would say that is the really hard way to do it. Yeah, but that it's is, a way. For the it? longest time, that was all people had. I mean, yeah. that was the only system for getting sober in the country. And I do not, I would not recommend that. What would you recommend? At the very least, 
like some of the harm reduction stuff could help. Okay. Like if you're at least like if you're an opiate addict mm-hmm. at the very least, like if you think that you can get by on like just methadone because methadone and suboxone will block out other opiates. You okay. Know? I would also tell a doctor if I was an alcoholic, I'd tell a doctor because mm-hmm. maybe they could give me something like anabuse. Yeah. That's hardcore stuff. So anabuse is a drug that what it does is it removes your ability or suspends your ability, your your body's ability to, to, to actually digest alcohol. And so when you drink alcohol, you get violently ill, yeah. even a little bit. It's really intense. And there's apparently very few side effects. So it's pretty, it's a, it's a pretty good, good one. What do you think about programs like Salvation Army that are free, but super religious, but still like, I mean, why not, right? Yeah, I mean, if it's all you have access to, there are uh, there are other resources here in the city, with detox centers. Mm-hmm. Like what? Do you know? Um, Huckleberry House is the one for younger kids, right? Okay. And um, there's Olaf? Olaf. Yeah, Olaf, Olaf is the one I was thinking and of. Then and then Walden there's Walden House or something like that? There's Walden House and then there's Hill and Vine. So just for folks, if you don't know what you're doing, you really can just go and Google, you know, detox in San Francisco, low cost rehab programs. And get yourself to a meeting um, because what you can also do is you can go to a meeting you can stand up and say this is the i have a high of like one hour sober i don't know what i'm doing i don't know what's going on i need help and you will have about 100 people swarming around you at the end of the meeting saying well this is what you can do yeah aa and na you can say what you want about the dogmatism i don't really care it is the most powerful it's one of the best inventions i think of western civilization in a lot of ways it's just so incredible it's huge it's everywhere it's all around the world it, it, it's like if you really need help Get yourself to a meeting and ask for help. Yeah, and it will happen. It will happen, and it will happen rapidly, and it will take your breath away. Yeah, how 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 quickly it happens. I mean, there are, and if it's not family members, you know, or it's not professionals, it is at least definitely the people in the recovery community. Like, there are so many people out there who are willing to just like let you take a load of your own stuff and put it on them yeah. for a second. It helps them. Yeah, they say like it helps them do the work. Do you have a sponsee? Uh, I don't have any sponsees because I'm not done with the steps. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, so sponsorship means when someone sponsors you, that means that someone who's been through the twelve steps and has about a year of sobriety or more uh, works the step, helps you work the steps, and then a sponsee, of course, is someone that you work with. Yeah, as a sponsor, one can also get commitments at AA meetings and any meetings where you, the guy who brings the cookies. Stack chairs. Stack chairs. Bring coffee. Bring coffee. Do all the really important things. You can just greet people outside. <laughs> or just greet meeting. people outside. I recommend. I recommend that everybody go to an AA meeting at least once. It's kind of amazing, you know. Well, this human beings should really. Like, really, it's it's just an incredible feeling, you know. There's so much warmth, and I think the fact that like you see it applied to you know alcohol, you know they have Narcotics Anonymous, you'll see Crystal Meth Anonymous, Cocaine mm-hmm, Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I think it really is just a rubric for breaking any bad habits and living a more fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. Um, you can totally strip the God stuff out of it, yeah. by the way. Like, it's, it's easy and it's it's uh, AA all the way, man. <laughs> I'm a fan, oof, I'm oof. a fan, hoof hoof. What would you recommend for, oh, by the way, and I will, and if anybody has any questions, if you're listening to this, you can email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com and ask me anything you want to know about recovery. And if I don't know the answer, I will point you in a direction to someone who does. And I will tell you what to do because that's what Whoa. this podcast is all we, about. We brought it back. We brought it full circle, baby. Wow. All man. right. So um, what would you recommend? We're going to sort of wind up with this yeah. last chunk about say a family member or a friend knows that they're that you, that someone is struggling in their lives. What should that person do? What can that person do? And what are they obligated to do? And what are they not obligated to do? You're not obligated to do anything. Yes. That's rule number all. one. Like you don't. <laughs> You don't like owe it to anybody. And in fact, if you feel like you owe it to someone, you're getting into like a real codependent situation and Mm -hmm. you need to examine that uh, yourself. Give me the other side of that question one more time. Well, like what are they, what are they obligated or not obligated to do? What can they do? Yeah. What what do they do? What does a person do? Yeah. I would think like the very first best effective thing is like you are undoubtedly angry at this human being. Yes. Like... (laughs) You are undoubtedly angry at this human being. And probably traumatized by yeah. what the human being has done. They've, they've crashed the car. They may have 
cheated on you or they hit have you. hit you or they have broken something or they have lost their job or lost your job yeah. something really really i mean it's and it's a it's a it has been a train wreck and i and i have worked with family members of, of people suffering from addiction and they go through just as much trauma it seems to me it's almost like they have some ptsd uh, and yeah, it's it's real and it's palpable they, they get better slower too. they do because they're not in treatment yeah right because the the thing is that the addict goes into treatment and it's like it's like a tortoise in the hare. You know, the family member thinks they're the hare. They think, oh, I'm I can I'm the sprinter, I'm the healthy one. But you know, your loved one is in treatment and they're learning about themselves and it's it's a whole, you know, anyway, you yeah. get the thing. Put that stuff aside. Yeah. You know, so they can put aside like there's a whole lifetime for you to tell them how much uh, the stuff they did upset you and to work through that with them. Okay. But you're not gonna be of any use in convincing them to get help or mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. helping them find help mm -hmm. if this is not somebody who's come to you they're probably going to need some convincing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a little bit um then i would very clearly establish some boundaries like here's our idea for you like you need to get a treatment mm -hmm. and like maybe if you were like my family we've even looked one up that we think would be great for you mm -hmm. so they kind of took all of the planning out of my hands and they also great. and they also set boundaries like if you use again we're going to cut you off financially right you know my my friend um you may know him uh charlie van leuven I know charlie. A, yes who's a sober coach charlie was my sober coach can't recommend him enough and he's the kind of guy who'll show up in people's lives and like get them out of bed and let's get to a meeting and teach them how to live a sober existence in addition he does interventions and all this other stuff he says to me that the only you've got two levers love and money as yep. you ha you can withhold love and you can withhold money and that is it that's all you got would you agree with that uh, i would absolutely i was recently we have very good family friends growing up and they came mm -hmm. my they asked me you know they've tried to get their kid to go to rehab and they've been paying his way for a really long time yeah, and I enabling said, him tell him to cut him tell him you're going to cut him off mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and they have a hard time doing it like my baby will starve yeah you know what your baby no. is not eating your baby is doing cocaine and heroin right. it's also like <laughs> you know at least in this like your baby's a spoiled rich kid he's yeah. not ever going to starve like he's yeah. going to go to rehab like yeah if you can pull that you know? yeah so you have to be there has to be a real brutality and not a brutality it's sort of a cold thinking calculated you have to really step into your thinking function and sort of put your emotions all of your emotions aside and say this is what's going to happen this is how it's going to be or else boom 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 and then you have to back that up with action because if you give in they'll just work you yeah so we're good at that and also get yourself to an al-anon meeting and an al-anon meeting is was invented they created right around the time of aa it doesn't stand for anything apparently but it just al-anon and that's for family members or friends of those suffering from addiction and it's basically about uh, the the core of Al-Anon idea is that you cannot control the addict just the way the addict cannot control their addiction you cannot control the addict in your life and to let go of control and to stop trying to fix that because you can't um, the only thing you can do is take care of yourself set limits and maybe offer up a plan maybe not and meet other people who are going through the same and thing. meet other people going through the same thing so um, there is a definite parallel process between the addict and the family member yes uh, i would also recommend adult children of alcoholics ah that that's is a good one what I've is that never mean? i've never been to one right uh i just have a friend who um goes to one and he said it's it's fantastic it's for it to me it sounded like it's a little bit removed from al-anon where it was like the i'm in an everyday you know or at least consistent right kind of personal relationship with somebody in addiction mm -hmm. where this was more about coping with what it was like being the child of an alcoholic wow that's amazing it's been really powerful for him that's fantastic well this has been really powerful for me this has been really fun i didn't think it would be this fun and it's fun it is fun it is fun i should do more of them you can do another one too if you want but you have to think of this up of a topic yeah. you can okay. do the advertising industry I would love to do the advertising. Oh, industry. we should do that. Yeah. That would be so cool. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, fans. Fans of Tell Me What to Do. All right. Good night. Hey, thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminresick at gmail.com. That's B E N J A M I N R U S S A C K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by visiting my website at benjaminrusick.com. 
Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.